we are in uh, a series I started a couple weeks ago, and we're going to go through, as, as I say, when we do the, the Wednesday night, I go through the school year, so we're going through into May. Uh, and instead of doing what I normally do, which is to study the book of the Bible or several books, uh, about once a decade I do something a little different. So this is that once a decade I do something different. And what we're looking at, as it says up there, is the beginning of a movement. We're looking at Christianity in the first century and the context in the world in which it, it originated. Uh, in September, in the sermon series, we're doing some of that also. And, and so I kind of set a lot of groundwork and I set a lot of stuff up. We, we talked about, a couple weeks ago, uh, the coming of John, which was the forerunner to Christ. Last week, you know, we, we talked about the beginning of the beginning, um, that, you know, Jesus, you know, coming. Uh, today, what I'm going to do is I want to talk about the central message of Christ and what that message is for us. Now, there, a lot of times people appreciate about the message of Christ is this or that, and I get it. Uh, you know, you know he, he says, you know, he didn't come to be served, but to serve, give his life for ransom for many. I came that you might have life to the fullest. You know, all that's the message. But... I'm thinking of messages in terms of, of like sermonic teaching. And that's found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 on something called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I, I have taught you the Sermon on the Mount two occasions. I taught it, I uh, preached it in uh, like the first summer I was here, 2015. And then I taught it at, uh, in January or February whenever we had uh, that deep fry. So I'm not going to go through three chapters. You know, i got 30 minutes to cover these three chapters. I'm not trying to go in detail. But what I want to help you do is understand the context of that message in the culture in which they lived. And remembering that the Sermon on the Mount is the basic message that Jesus had. It's only found in its entirety like this one, one time. That's in Matthew. There's a abbreviated version in Luke. Some think that, you know, this is the only time Jesus preached it. That's just absurd, man. I mean, this is his basic message about what it means to be his follower. He probably preached it many times. I... I Listen, when you have a good message, or at least you think it's a good message, you preach it all the time. There are some messages I preach a lot. I've tinkered with it. I've changed it some. Uh, and, you know, no doubt Jesus, depending on the context where he was at, preached it in different ways. Matthew probably summarizes it. You can read it in about 15 minutes. It's probably with all the people there, he spent a good length of time teaching. This is probably a, a short and condensed Reader's Digest kind of version of it. But it gets at the heart of his message. And he's, he's, he's saying basically this. If you're my follower, this describes you. This describes my followers. It's an important message. That's why it's early in the book of Matthew. And to see this, we have to see it in contrast to what the Pharisees and the scribes and religious leaders said it meant to be Jewish. Because he's not preaching to Gentiles, though it applies to us in some sense. He's preaching to a group of people. In fact, what it says is that he was on a mountainside and people gathered around him. And probably the way to understand this is his immediate disciples were right there. You know, the 12 and some others. Then there was a general crowd a little bit further out. And then just kind of curious people beyond that, which would include religious leaders. Pharisees, scribes, rabbis, the Herodians, all of that group. Probably not any Sadducees. They wouldn't have been up in that area. But all the rest. And in many ways, this message, as much as it is aimed for his followers, is aimed at, whoops, high tech, is aimed at those religious leaders because they're listening in. And so it's a fascinating message. He begins the message in Matthew chapter 5, 
verse 3, by saying a series of Beatitudes, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. He's talking about the blessed. It's an objective state. Some versions say happy. Why happy is the way to translate the word makrios. It's not the correct translation here. Blessed speaks of a condition you reside in. He's saying, the people who are followers of me, this describes them. The poor in spirit, they're merciful, they're these things. He, and he describes them as being part of the kingdom. He uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. The Jews, and I mentioned this some, you know, in other grow, and I mentioned it uh, last Sunday morning, thought of the kingdom, God's kingdom, as being the reign of the Jews. When the Messiah come, he would destroy the Romans, set up a Jewish kingdom, and the, so, and the Jews would reign, and those who were the most righteous and read self-righteous, uh, the Pharisees and others would be at the top of the reigning. They would be the head honchos. And he comes and teaches something fundamentally different. So he describes what kingdom life is like. And he gives these beatitudes. Then in verse 13, 14, 15, and 16, he talks about influence. He uses the term salt and he uses the term light. Salt has to do with kind of the way you, both these terms are penetrating. Salt penetrates everything it touches. Light penetrates darkness. It has to do with the moral quality. It has to do with the spiritual quality. And then he comes to verse 17. And this is what he said. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Now, the law and the prophets is a way of talking about the scriptures. At that time, the only scriptures they had were what we call the Old Testament. And they didn't call it the Old Testament. They just called it scriptures or law and the prophets. So he's talking about that. The law and the prophets did a couple things. It revealed the heart and mind of God. It also taught the Jewish people how they relate to God. And in all of that, there was a pointing towards something, someone that is Jesus. So even as far back, you could argue as far back as the, the Garden of Eden when there was sin, and God talks about the punishment, and he talks about the serpent, you know, that the, the woman would crush the head of the serpent, the serpent would bite to heal the woman. Many think, I agree, this is a very basic veil pointing to the coming of the Christ. Because he talks about the seed of the woman. In Abraham, when he calls Abraham, it's very clear. He says, the whole world will be blessed through you. Well, how is the whole world going to be blessed through him? Because of the Jews? No. The concept of blessing would be through one who's going to come. That would be the Messiah. And he's going to work it through the Jewish people. So there's, there's throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, as we read, in many ways, a historical unveiling of God's people and their continued sin, and we see God revealing himself, we also see times when God reveals through his prophets, one is coming, one is coming, one is coming. You see it in a lot of the Psalms. You see it in the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, other places. Jesus says, I have not come to do away with that. Now, why would he say that? Because in essence... That's what the Pharisees and the scribes had done. They would tell you they haven't, but as I've shared before, they took Ten Commandments, which describes how we relate to God, or how the Jews related to God as his people. And they made up 613 laws. And these laws had to be kept in order to be right with God, in their view. And all of these laws basically were things you did. They were about self-righteousness. Remember when Jesus came... And they came and asked him, what's the most important law? Jesus just summed up the Ten Commandments. He said, the greatest law is to love God, which really was taken from the Shema, love the Lord your God, which is 
most important. And the second is love others as yourself. So he said, love God, love others. He took all the Ten Commandments and said, here's, here's what it boils down to. It's the concept of love, which is critical. In um, John 13, he says, this is how people will know that you're my disciples, when you love one another. You love, 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 love. Now, so here, here's the thing. Jesus says, I didn't come to do away with them. I came to take the, all of that and fulfill it. The word fulfill means basically to overflow. So it's like if you pour, you know, have a cup, pour water in it, and it overflows. I came to bring it to its logical conclusion. So in essence, what Jesus is saying is this. All that is in the law and the prophets is fulfilled in me. I say this all the time, probably a couple of hundred, 300 times a year, I'll say this in some capacity. The Old Testament is a book of promise. The New Testament is a book of fulfillment. How do I know that? Because Jesus said that. He said, I can't. The New Testament's about Jesus. He said, I came to fulfill all of that. Now, he says something interesting. And then in verse 18 and 19. And if I truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, the little letters and strokes in Hebrew, it, it, it's complicated. There's, they don't have vowels. They have pointing. Pointing means there's little things uh, that you have in the language that, that adds the added vowels back into it. It's, it's, listen, Hebrew is an absurdly ridiculous language. There's a reason that it's dead. It should be dead. It's hard. I say that because I, had a, I made B's in Hebrew. That's t- I know I made, actually, I think I made C's in Hebrew. I know I passed. It's hard language. And they have all these little things in Hebrew. You know, and, and he said, all of that has to come to its absolute fulfillment. None of that will pass away. Now, what was he saying? Until all is accomplished. So how is it going to be accomplished in Jesus? Now remember, the Pharisees, it's not like they didn't say the Ten Commandments weren't important. They just took their 613 rules, laws, and regulations, and that trumped everything. The oral law trumped everything. And Jesus said, no, no, no. What really matters is all this. And then he says this in verse, in verse 19. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom. Whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called greatest. Is he telling us as Christians that we have to go and keep all the commandments? That's not what he's saying. The Pharisees had annulled those commandments. The spirit and intent of them. He's fixing to show us how they did it. He is saying the Pharisees, the rabbis, the scribes in creating this religious system had depleted and they had bled out all of the vitality in life of what it meant to be God's followers by putting this unbelievably arcane and difficult system. They think they're going to be great in the kingdom. He says they're going to be least. I mean, in other words, they're not really even going to be a part of the kingdom. Sometimes this is misunderstood. They say, well, well you know, if we as Christians deny the Old Testament, we'll be in the kingdom, but we'll still we'll be least. It's not what it means. It's talking about a cancellation out, annuls it, cancels it out. Jesus fulfilled it. There's, there's nothing we're obligated to keep in the Jewish system. Except to love God and love other people. Which, by the way, we do in many ways in keeping the Ten Commandments. Okay? And then he says this. This is so important for the rest of this uh, sermon. I say to you that unless you're, what's the word? Righteousness. Righteousness is, the, is when we're right standing before God. Surpasses. 
that the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice what he says. You have to surpass the scribes and Pharisees or you won't even enter the kingdom. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, had to, they followed those 1613 laws and they said, we're up here in the kingdom. All the Jews would be a part of the kingdom of God in their view, but the scribes and Pharisees by keeping the law would be superior. Jesus says, if you don't surpass their righteousness, you won't even enter the kingdom. You're lost. Now, how are they going to do that? How can you do better than keeping the laws of the, of the Pharisees and scribes? When he says surpasses, he's not saying be better at. He's talking about a completely different kind of. You have to have a righteousness that in the quality, in the type of righteousness, is completely different. It's not a matter of quantity. It's a matter of quality. And in doing that, he completely discounts and evaporates and moves aside their legal system. He says, you got to have to understand what I expect of you is fundamentally different than what they're teaching. And then here's what he does. In the rest of chapter 5, if we get to verse 48, he gives you six examples of that. And oftentimes, we think he's taking, you know, he's taking parts of the, the Ten Commandments and he's reinterpreting and explaining it. That's not what he's doing. He says, for instance, in verse 21, You have heard that the ancients were told you should not commit murder. He's going to give six examples about murder, about adultery, about divorce, which is not in the Ten Commandments, about telling the truth, about, which is about serving, going the extra mile, stuff like that, which is not in the Ten Commandments, and loving your enemy, which is not in the Ten Commandments, or loving your neighbor, which is not in the Ten Commandments. In every one of those, he says, you have heard, or you have heard the ancients were told. Two times he says the ancients were told, four times you have heard. Now, he did not say, it is written. He said, someone has told you. Now, when he uses the phrase, when the ancients were told, what he's basically doing is he is saying the Pharisees and Sadducees, I mean, the Pharisees and scribes, when they would come to the Ten Commandments, they would talk about the oral tradition that was handed down about that. In other words, they would say the rabbis taught, uh, the great leaders and teachers taught. They would talk about the things that people were taught. They never taught about what was written. What do we do? When, when we come to the Old Testament or come to things, we, we, we preach, you know, we teach, hopefully, I mean, I do. What was written? What did God tell us? What did God reveal to us? It's not what I say, but what God writes and reveals. No, he said, you have heard the ancients were told not to commit murder, which, which is in the ten. But then he talks about, to some degree, how the Pharisees and scribes would explain that. They basically looked at murder as literally, I don't kill you, I haven't committed murder. And Jesus says, they're missing the point. He said, before there's ever murder, there is animosity and hatred in the heart. You've got to deal with the heart problem. You've got to deal with animosity and hatred. In fact, all of these six examples he used deals with our relationships with other people. If you take notes, you want to write that down. Chapter 5, from verse 21 to the end of the chapter deals with our relationships with other people. And this is what, remember, Jesus later on, he's going to say, you must love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love other people. And he says, here's how you love people. You don't have animosity towards them. You don't treat them as objects for your sexual satisfaction. 
You don't divorce, so you can just throw them away. You tell the truth, always. When people ask something of you or insult you, you turn the other cheek. You go the extra mile. You serve people, and you do this. You love people. You love your neighbor. You love your enemy. You love people. He says, if you just love those who love you, who care? Anybody do that? You got to love all people. And then at the end of chapter 5, notice what's said. Verse 48. Therefore, in light of all of what I just told you, you are to be, what's the word? Perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. And we're like, we can't be perfect. We're sinners. I got that. The word perfect as the Greek word teleos, which means to come to finality or to be completed, to be satisfied. What he's saying is this. You are to have relationships with people that are complete, perfect, whole. Your, your attitude towards people should be such that you seek to have whole, harmonious, completed relationships. You know, don't sin against people. Now, he's not saying you're never going to sin. We know we're going to sin. Okay? That's not the point. And it's not, well, these sins are okay and these don't. What he's saying is, in the world in which you live, the one place sin should never be is in your relationships with other people. That is fundamentally different than what the Pharisees and the scribes and all those people taught. It's a different way of looking at relationships. They looked at relationships, and it didn't matter. All that mattered was you kept their law. That in the Jewish world, you could hate people. You could hate Gentiles. In fact, you could hate Samaritans. There was a certain degree of smug righteousness in hating people. In about in three weeks, I'm going to talk to you about the Samaritan woman and how Jesus dealt with her. And so what you see then is in our relationships, what is fundamentally different is our love for people. Now, in the sixth chapter, and obviously Jesus didn't write in chapters or speak in chapters. You have our attitude, for a lack of a better word, kind of towards religion. The Pharisees love to be seen by people. In fact, in verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You will have a reward. People will look at you and praise you, but the Father doesn't have, recognize what you've done. In other words, here's what the Pharisees wanted to do. They did stuff so that people would know them. Have you ever known people like that? I have. I tell this story quite often. Uh, growing up in the church that I grew up in, Debbie and I have talked about this, and I grew up in it longer than she did. There comes a point in your life as a pastor, as a Christian, as a pastor's wife and Christian, where you realize the church you grew up in, as much as you love it, was a really dysfunctional church. In other words, if I pastored them, most of them would hate me and probably try to fire me. And I probably wouldn't go there because I look at that church and say, man, you guys are beyond hope. So there was this guy in our church. Now, you have to understand our pastor, Dr. Barbie, he, 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 our services were about 50 minutes long. And I don't care where he was in his message. He ended it because when the time came, he said, if you're in the building, that was the end of the message. So he didn't want to preach. You know, back then, it was a time when you would call on people to pray. Y'all remember those days when pastors would call on people to pray? I never do that because I don't trust any of you to do the, to keep it. So we're on a time schedule, man. 
we have 60 minutes, and you're going to mess that up. Plus, talked, I've had people pray, and I felt like, Lord, i got to go back and correct half of what they said. So he would call on, doctor, on, on Captain Sparks to pray, because he knew Captain Sparks would pray forever. One time, my mama, I love my mom. That's where I get some of my stuff from. She timed his prayer at 11 minutes. 11 minutes. That's longer than some of the worship songs we sing in the second and third service. You know that. So, so, so and he would, he would pray in the king's English, which nobody understood. And he would use all of these flowing, elaborate words. And, and, and literally, I cannot tell you how many times he would call on Captain Sparks to pray. And you would hear people go, oh. <laughs> the Holy Spirit has left the building. He loved to be heard and seen. Now, I don't know if he's in heaven. When he gets there, I may have to apologize. If I get there, he's there. I may have to apologize for using him as an illustration. But then again, he may have to apologize for being one. But here's the thing. Our way of serving God isn't to be seen by people. And he gives these examples. He talks about praying, almsgiving, fasting. What does he say? Do it privately. It's not that we don't ever pray in public. Of course we pray in public. I pray in public all the time. I don't pray long in public. You, you, the longest I ever pray in public is on Wednesday night when I'm praying interceding. I don't pray long. I don't pray long at the food time. When I bless the food, that's no time to catch up on your prayer life for crying out loud. I don't, you know, I give, but you don't, you know, I don't make a big deal about giving. I'm honest about it. I don't make a big deal about it. I, obviously, I don't fast. That's not an issue. But, you know, I don't, I don't try to do, you know, the point of it all is, it's okay for people to know that I follow the Lord and do things, but that's not the reason we do that. And then he goes, but the Pharisees did it. He said, you've got to have a different kind of righteousness. And then he talks about money. There's great sermons to be preached about money there, and I've done it. I'm not doing it right now. But he talks about, don't let money be your master. You can't serve God in money. Pharisees love their money. Oh, they love their coin. And when they gave, they love people to know that they gave the coin. But they love their money. And listen, I understand money's nice, money's important. We live, all of us, by the world standard, are pretty well off. I get that. And, uh, but that focusing on money and the worry that comes with it damages one's relationship with God. So here's the thing, verse 33, here's what he says. But seek first, this is beautiful, his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Now listen, the Pharisees always talked about the kingdom and their righteousness. But they had the wrong idea of the kingdom. What did Jesus say? Seek first his kingdom. His righteousness. He'll take care of things else. Because the Pharisees had the wrong kind of righteousness. And the wrong kind of kingdom. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 6. Do not do the things you do. Like the hypocrites. The Pharisees. The scribes. Don't do it like them. Back to chapter 5, verse 17. You have to have a different type of righteousness. What do you have to have? You have to have the righteousness that God seeks and the kingdom that God seeks. And what Jesus did was so amazing. He is just destroying the Jewish religion. Do you not? It's easy to understand why the Jewish religious leaders hated Jesus. Because he called them out for all their hypocrisy. 
And it's important for us to realize, well, we always have to be careful that we don't take our faith and turn it into a bunch of rules and regulations and systems that make it difficult for people to be saved. In Acts 8 and Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, when they were talking about whether or not the Jews, Gentile converts, had become Jewish, and they said no. James says, don't make it difficult for people to come to the Lord. Don't make a bunch of rules and regulations, which is what they were trying to do, forcing the Gentiles to become Jewish first and then followers of Christ. He said, no, don't make it difficult. And how difficult does the church make it? For people to follow Christ. That's the danger. So then he comes to, we come to chapter 7. So we've seen Christ deal with relationships and religion. And now he's going to deal with some attitudes. And we get the famous, do not judge lest you be judged. And probably the misquoted passage in all of the New Testament. The idea of judging is to determine the value of worth of people. It's not to be discernment. Because right after he says, don't judge, you should be judged. What did he say? Don't give what is sacred to dogs and pearls before swine. Sounds like he's judging to me. And what he's doing is saying, don't be judging the value and worth of people in terms of receiving the gospel. Don't look at the little speck in their eye, he says, unless you take the plank out of yours. Now, what, what, are, what are Christians great at? We're great at lost people looking at them and talking about all the sins they have. Man, you've got to quit doing that. You've got to start living this way. You've got to knock that off. And when you do all that, we'll, we'll, we'll let you come in. I, I, I remember growing up, and I remember pastoring a small church in Pastor Long, where certain types of people weren't welcome in our church because of their lifestyle, because of their sin. I, I pastored a little church not long. I didn't, I'm 14 months all we could do. I used to, I used to practice at a cemetery next to that church. And I tell, I used to go out in the cemetery and practice my sermons because I got, I used to get a response out of them when I preach. <laughs> I felt like I had a few amens and a few people maybe on the verge of coming up out of the dead. <laughs> There's a guy who, who I, Started coming there. I think maybe he got saved. I don't start coming there. He was trying to change his life. And they kicked him and wouldn't let him come back because, as they said, he sang at a honky-tonk. I'm like, are you kidding me? He sang at a honky-tonk? I mean, first place, they needed someone to lead worship. He might have been a potential prospect right there. And I just think, ah. Oh. And I, and I was a kid. I was 24. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything in that church. I knew there's no way I was going to turn that church around. Or the Lord was going to do it, but not through me because I didn't have the bill. I, I was too young. But I can just remember thinking, why, why, why would you kick the guy out? He needs, he needs love and understanding and, and right teaching. No, we're going to kick him out because he's not meeting our standards. Can you imagine if we kicked out every person in our church who attended a honky-tonk? How many rows deep would we go Do we have anybody here? I don't know. I mean, some of you guys may all be out. Doug, you might be gone. I don't know. <sighs> Notice what he says in verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this, he says, is the law and the prophets. Now, what did he say about the law and the prophets? He said, I have come to do what? Fulfill it. 
And he said, this is the law and the prophets. Treat people the way you want them to do what? Treat you. Don't you think that churches and Christians who follow that one, one verse, one verse, would have a far greater impact on their community than churches who get caught up on whether or not everybody believes the right thing. Now, I know we need to believe there were some right things. I get that. But you believe in everything I believe is right as what I believe is, isn't near as important as you and I treating everybody we know the way we want to be treated. And here's the thing. Have you ever thought about the fact, and I think doctrine's important, trust me, I, no one, I, mean, I think, and, and I'm, I'm always concerned about right doctrine. Don't get me wrong. But if we treated people the way we want to be treated, is it possible that somewhere along the way, they might want to know why we act the way we do and we start talking about Jesus? They may just want Jesus and eventually they may actually start, I don't know, believing things the way we do. Yeah. I think so. The Pharisees didn't do it that way. So he ends the Sermon on the Mount with his conclusion. He says, Enter the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, like the Pharisees. But the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. Very few find it. It is him. And then he says this, Beware of the false prophets, Pharisees. You come to you in sheep's clothing, but inly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their what? Their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles. Every tree that bears good fruit, bad tree bears bad fruit. That's how you tell the fruit. Do they love people? And then he goes in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, what is the will of the Father? To follow Jesus and to live the way he describes. Many will say to me, I, I, I comment on this verse all the time, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, in your name perform any miracles? And he said, I, he declared, I did not know you. Depart from me, because you practice that which is lawless. He said, yeah, no part. And then he talked about two foundations and two builders, and it concluded. And the people were amazed at how he taught And this is what Jesus is saying. You may think being religious will get you into the kingdom. But when you come to face me, I'm going to tell you, get out. You don't belong. Because you didn't do what the Father wanted. What did the Father want? The Father wanted you to have a relationship with him. And in that relationship, you would go and you would love people and help them come follow me. This is the message of Jesus. Period. That's it. Now he'll talk, you know, the great commandment, love God, love others, fits right in. The great commission, go make disciples, right there. He'll do miracles, he'll confront, all these things will happen. At the end of the day, 
he will tell them. Some shape, form, or fashion, this is how you come to God. You come through me. And this is what I expect. Think about this. Everybody talks about being New Testament church, Great Commission church. If we were just a Sermon on the Mount church, we'd be doing all right. And we could sum that up. Three statements. Be perfect in your relationships with others as everybody else is. In your religion, seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And thirdly, in your attitudes, treat people the way you want to be treated. And if we did that, wow, things would take off. Just like they did in Acts. Okay, comments or questions you may have. Yes, sir. Well, the word perfect is, like I said, is the word teleos, complete. So in our, he's talking about in dealing with people, have a complete, whole attitude in dealing with people. Fundamentally, which is love, which is what God does. When you think about John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, that so loving the world, that is a perfect, complete way of dealing with people. Sure, he deals with sin. That's not the issue. But his love towards people is complete and whole. How he deals with people is always complete. It's perfect. So we ought to deal with people in a perfect way. And he just gave six examples, starting with, you know, what it's about, you know, murder and then adultery and on and on. So the idea then is in my dealings with you, I am to be perfect, complete, without sin in how I deal with you. That's the idea. Is that easy to do? Sir? Is that easy to do? Uh, no. And none of you come close, trust me. I don't either. Well, you know, back in that day, this was, it was odd because pigs, pigs aren't the lovable things we think of. The dogs back then were not like your pet, like my two chihuahuas. They ain't, they ain't that. They ain't your little dogs. They were wild scavenger dogs. And the pigs were more, what he's talking about, now pigs were considered unclean by the Jews, so that would gather their attention. The pigs were uh, kind of like we have in South Texas, javelinas, those wild things with those big old tusks. So pearls look a lot like this, these little carob pods that pigs love to eat. And you might be tempted when they're chasing you, that javelina's chasing you, you might be tempted to appease them, and you don't have any of those pods to eat. So you might take your valuable, priceless pearls, which were very valuable back then. Uh, you might take them, and you might throw them, hoping that would satisfy them. And as soon as they ate them, they would realize they'd be even more angry. So when he talks about discernment in not giving what is sacred to the dogs and pearls before swine, what he's saying is don't be foolish in taking the gospel or taking your light and your salt to people who were obviously going to reject it and cast it aside. So, you know, for me, I use something like this. If I know someone is hugely antagonistic towards Christ, uh, like, like, like on social media, I got some really antagonistic and, and it's mean friends, a lot of stuff like that. I'm not going to engage them in any, I'm not going to engage them about Jesus just off the cuff. If they come to me, then I will. Whereas I have some friends, some who are atheists, and I engage them in, in 
Christ conversations because I'm not casting a pearl before swines because I know that their heart will let me have a conversation with them. They're not, they're not, they're not going to, uh, in some way, blaspheming Christ or ridicule Christ. They're going to be respect what I have to say. But so it it's kind of has to do with that. So I'm not, I'm not going to walk into, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to walk into a bar on a Saturday night and stand up and say, all oh, you people are going to hell if you don't come to church. I was casting pearls before swine. Um, and besides, that other guy might, from my last, that church might be playing there. I don't want to do that anyways. <laughs> Any other questions? All right. That's it. I'll see you when I see you.